1: Hello, Weather Geeks listeners. Thanks for choosing the podcast. Today, we're highlighting the best of geeks with one of our favorite episodes.
0: This week on the Weather Geeks podcast, we go to the bottom of the earth, Antarctica. A white desert covered in snow and ice, but did you know plants and algae make up an underwater forest at its edges? And that these plants can be used to develop drugs to help with cancer and the flu. Dr. James McClintock, from the University of Alabama, Birmingham, joins us to discuss why studying this part of the world is important and why so many people are making the trip down to Antarctica to learn more about the region and experience climate change in action. Thank you for joining us, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. It's a pleasure. Well, let's just dive right in. First of all, uh, welcome over to Atlanta. We're talking about some really interesting topics today. You you go to Antarctica. So as we are actually talking about this, we're in May. So it's the other side of the seasonal calendar there. So what is it there? And are there people there in Antarctica right now?
1: Well, the equivalent to May in Antarctica would be sort of mid-fall right now. Right. And uh, my colleagues, Chuck and Maggie Amsler and three of our our students are down there right now. Uh, winter is coming on. I can tell you because I've been down there this time of year that it's getting light about 10 in the morning. It's getting dark about 3 in the afternoon. Right. And from uh, emails and, and, and keeping in touch with my group, I know that they've had days where they just you know can't get outside. Yeah. The wind's blowing. But the weather does pick up every now and then and uh, perk up for going out and getting into the field and scuba diving and doing all the kinds of things that our marine ecology research is involved in.
0: And let me just kind of set the stage for who you are, for our, for our listeners. Uh, you are at the UAB Polar and Marine Biology Endowed Professor, the author of Lost Antarctica, and a new book, A Naturalist Goes Fishing. I That's understand. right. We'll, we'll talk about both of those today. And you're going to be honored in June in Davos with the SCAR Medal for Education and Communication. So uh, clearly you have ascended to the top of your field, and so it's an honor to have you on. So let's, let's just talk about it. There are a couple of things I want to talk about today. Um, I want to go right there with this finding the cure in the underwater forest of Antarctica. First of all, what are
1: underwater forests? Tell us about those. Well, I'm I'm really a marine uh, biologist that works on sponges and soft corals and starfish and things like that. But my colleague Chuck Amsler, who's down there right now, is a phycologist. He studies seaweeds and I, it's just amazing. If you put on a scuba outfit and you drop into the water in front of Palmer Station on the western Antarctic Peninsula, you are swimming in a forest. Uh, you have seaweeds towering over your head 30 or 40 feet. You've got some species that have blades that are you know 10 feet long. Wow. Um, there's 150 species, roughly, of seaweeds that occur along the western Antarctic Peninsula. Now, where I used to work further south at McMurdo Station, the largest of the Antarctic stations on the, on the continent, uh, it's a U.S. station, um, it's too far south for seaweeds because there's just not enough light uh, to support their growth. But, boy, where we're working now, they are very, very luxuriant.
0: Now, in terms of your own work, there apparently these particular – seaweed and algae have medicinal or, or, or curing type properties or principles? I'm, I'm yeah. not familiar with any of this. So I may be murdering some of the terminologies. No, so that's why we have you on here to help us with it.
1: Yeah. So our program over the past uh, 25 years has really been focused on an area known as chemical ecology. And we study toxic chemicals that are produced by seaweeds, sponges, soft corals, essentially animals uh, that can't get up and run away and that don't have a shell to hide under. Uh, And seaweeds, of course, uh, can't run away, and they don't have shells. So often these organisms will sequester in their tissues toxic chemicals to protect themselves from getting eaten or overgrown. And believe it or not, these same chemicals that have evolved for Purposes of protection can also be active against cancer, cystic fibrosis, different types of bacteria. Um, and to get at your question, yes, we have found seaweeds, uh, particularly a red seaweed, um, that has a protein in it that's very active against the H1N1 flu virus. Um, we've also found recently in an Antarctic sponge a compound that is active against MRSA. And you may recall that when you go to the hospital now, the big concern is that you're going to get an infection that cannot be treated by antibiotics. Yes, and MRSA is one of those. I have two kids. so I'm always concerned. You're about always those concerned. Of things. What was so special about this compound from an Antarctic sponge? It was one of the first, if not the first, compound that was active against MRSA in the biofilm form, and that just means that it's MRSA that's hiding underneath a little cover of material. So if you go in and have a knee replacement done, it's not unusual to get what's called a biofilm forming on that. And if you get MRSA underneath that shell, it's hard to get antibiotics in there. And when I spoke to a group of surgeons the other day about this, they told me that in some cases now they have to remove the implant get the patient cleared of the bacteria, and redo the surgery. So this compound from an Antarctic sponge could provide information about how to get to MRSA that's hiding uh, underneath this biofilm.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. I'm a degreed meteorologist, so I think a lot about the atmosphere and meteorology and climate. Let's kind of, before we dive deeper into some of this information, let's kind of set the stage for our Weather Geeks listeners in terms of the climate of Antarctica, the temperature of the water, because I'm curious about how these things grow in such cold water. So mm-hmm. um, just give us a little overview of the Antarctic climate and what you're seeing in terms of how it's changing.
1: Okay. Well, I w- I'll put that in the, in the context of my history working in Antarctica. Sure, please do. The first 10 years I worked at McMurdo Station, which is below New Zealand. The water temperature at the station is minus 1.8 degrees centigrade. It's very cold. I mean, the only reason it's not a block of ice is because there's salt in it, and that lowers the freezing point. Um, On a typical day, it's it's below zero, even in the summer uh, at McMurdo Station. It's cold. Um, Now, about 18 years ago, I left McMurdo behind and I moved up to the Antarctic Peninsula. And you know, when I used to hear about Palmer Station at McMurdo, people would talk about it like it was a, a Shangri-La, a sort of a paradise, the Banana Republic, they'd call it, you know, the little station with 45 Americans perched on a point with a glacier behind it and whales leaping in front of it. And it was just, the you know, amazing to even think about getting there. And because of seaweeds, Because of Chuck Amsler and his work with seaweeds, we got there because that was the place to go to work on their chemistry and their ecology. And so uh, what I didn't realize at the time was I was moving to one of the most rapidly warming regions of our planet, Um, 20 miles from Palmer Station. There's another station, a Ukrainian station, used to be British, and they've been taking air temperatures for 65 plus years every day. If you plot those midwinter air temperatures, they've gone up about 10 degrees Fahrenheit over that period of time of about 65 years. That is dramatic. So this is is far outpacing the warming we're seeing broadly. This is far outpacing. I mean, I would put it maybe up in the category of the Arctic um, that we're seeing in some regions of the Arctic. Um, now, not all of Antarctica is warming that rapidly. Well, I was about to bring that yeah, up because the,
0: Antarctica is one of these places that oftentimes those that are skeptical about climate will use mm-hmm, and say, well, there are parts of our mm-hmm. Antarctica that are gaining snow or mass. Right. How do you rectify that argument?
1: There? Well, what's happening on the Antarctic Peninsula is rather um, sad in a way in terms of gaining snow. Um, it's becoming more humid. As it warms on the peninsula. And snowfall is heavier and somewhat later than it used to be. And the most poignant story I can share with you about this is the Adelie penguin, which has been followed now on some islands near the station for over 45 years. Uh, a fellow by the name of Bill Frazier, as a grad student, he tagged 15,000 breeding pairs of Adelie penguins for his doctoral project. And he's come back every year to follow them. And he's gone from 15,000 breeding pairs to about 1,500 now. Wow. And what's happening in part is that these late unseasonable snowstorms are burying the entire colony after they've laid their eggs and the eggs drown when the snow melts. Now, to get back to your original question, I think scientists would concur that the eastern side of the continent of Antarctica is not warming as rapidly as the western side and the peninsula. And there's various speculations about why that might be. Um, It's not cooling necessarily, but it's not warming as rapidly. One theory is it's the Antarctic circumpolar current, the world's largest current that goes around Antarctica in a clockwise direction. That current brings warmth with it. And on the eastern side of Antarctica, it's a deep current it kind of comes up shallower along the Western side and particularly along the peninsula. So it's warmer. So so one theory is that the warmth of that current is adding to the warmth that you're seeing on the Western side of Antarctica and the peninsula. Yes. Um, The other theory about why the Eastern part of Antarctica may not be warming as quickly has to do with the ozone hole. And this is this massive hole over the entire continent of Antarctica, which is, of course, the size of China and India combined. That's the result of chlorofluorocarbons. Um, it's a wonderful story because we now have the Montreal Protocol that has regulated the chlorofluorocarbons. And there were people that were skeptical initially of About the ozone that. hole, right? Yeah. So it's the same yeah, sort yeah, of the the same narrative, narrative playing of same. out. When I lived in New Zealand on sabbatical 13 years ago, the ozone hole would extend over New Zealand periodically. And in the newspaper in the weather section, they would tell you what level of sunscreen to put on that day as a function of the hole in the the ozone. And they have the highest rates of skin cancer of any country in the world. So the good news is that the Montreal Protocol is working. There are 197 signatories to the Montreal Protocol. It's probably the most successful treaty of all time. And the companies that produced the chlorofluorocarbons, the the refrigerants that were destroying the ozone, didn't go out of business. Uh, They came up with new compounds that are not as destructive. And Susan Solomon, the famous MIT well. scientist sure. who came to my university and we became friends, uh, told me recently that they now predict that the hole isn't going to close at the end of the century; it's probably going to close mid-century. Wow! So that's that's and some news. So perhaps that is, for some of you, yeah. I think it's a the wonderful a wonderful uh, sort of uh, analogy or metaphor for what we can think about with with climate change so, and with uh, carbon compounds.
0: Right. And so you're 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 working in yeah we're we're talking here and, and and James McClintock is the author of Lost Antarctica and so you're not someone that's sitting there in your basement tweeting about what you think is happening. You go to a place where you see the changes.
1: Right. Talk about and that. And I have, uh, as a real result of seeing these changes, the glaciers receding on the western Antarctic Peninsula, about 87% of those glaciers are now receding. Um, I don't have to re- remind you and your listeners that we all heard in the news not too long ago that the Larson Sea ice shelf over on the eastern side of the Antarctic Peninsula— broke off a chunk, you know, the size of Connecticut, and floated out to sea. Uh, that was the largest iceberg, I believe, in the history of humanity.
0: Yeah, I, mean, I, I heard something along the size um, of
1: Rhode Island, maybe, or something close? Yeah, closer, well, maybe. Uh, Larson B. But the B was, was Rhode, Island. Rhode Island. Yes, okay. Yes, and actually, uh, you're right. Larson B. was Rhode Island. Larson C., Um Anyway, it was, state- it was big. It was big. <laughs> right. It was very big. So you have ice sheets breaking out. You have the receding glaciers. You have the impacts on penguins. Um, we have elephant seals that have moved in. From, they're, they're coming down the peninsula as it's warming. They're sub-Antarctic, warmer species that are arriving at our station. Wow. In the middle of the summer, you can now have uh, you know, a bunch of big elephant seals laying around in the middle of the station. Do you know what that smells like on a warm day? <laughs> I can't imagine. Um, and the Antarctic fur seals are moving down extending their range. Right. So you have these range extensions going on. So it's really a very dramatic impact on the community that you're seeing with your own eyes.
0: Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Welcome back to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. James McClintock from UAB, uh, one of the world's foremost experts on things Antarctica and ecology there and things growing in the ocean. And I want to talk a little bit more about another aspect of Antarctica, and that's the growing
1: Antarctic tourism. Is this a problem or is it a good thing? Well, that's a great question. You've got just the right person, I think, to, to focus on that. I was a bit of a skeptic about Antarctic tourism when I was a scientist in my early years working in Antarctica. I, I was concerned about the environmental impacts. And, um, but ironically, uh, 11 years ago, I was asked by a cruise company to come along and be their lead lecturer on climate change. And I thought to myself, you know, I need to give this a shot. And I went on this amazing cruise with the the company is Abercrombie and Kent. And they've been in Antarctica for many years. And what struck me about the company and the other companies that are taking tourists to Antarctica on cruise ships is they have a very, very strong environmental ethic. These, These people are being trained in the do's and don'ts of being a good custodian of the Antarctic environment. And they just eat it up. I mean, you are dipping your boots into various things so you don't spread things between the islands and the mainland. Um, you're learning from the experts about what you, sh- how close to get to things, the wildlife. Uh, you're learning about where to step on the trails. And people go home from this experience of Antarctica, which... I mean, it's it's a scale of landscape and an abundance of wildlife that you cannot experience on any other portion of our Earth. And I've watched for 10 years now, I lead a cruise every year, I've watched, um, well, 200 people times 10 years, 2,000 people become ambassadors to Antarctica. It literally changes them, and they go home... Um, and they're convicted to do something, to help protect Antarctica, to, to talk to their senators and congressmen uh, about climate change and the things that they've witnessed. The other thing is that we visit the station where I work. It's a federally funded U.S. station. You're funded
0: by the National Science Foundation, yes, right? Yes,
1: that's right. And this is an opportunity. There's usually over uh, 100 Americans on board, the 200 among the 200 guests. And you get to see your taxes at work. You, you get to see a, a wonderful, uh, science operation going on, talk to the different scientists, some that are doing meteorology, some that are doing marine ecology, um, working on whales. And it's, it's just a fantastic opportunity for people to learn about what science is going on in Antarctica. Yeah. So for those reasons, um, is there a negative side to Antarctic tourism? Well, the potential for disrupting station activities, but Actually, the station has embraced tourism. We have a group of people at the station that really enjoy giving the tours. We bring people through the station, but not through the active research lab, disrupting what's going on. But they get to, you know, they get a great feel of what's going on, and they get to have, you know, one of those famous brownies that's served in the galley of Palmer Station that now is, it's it's known worldwide and has been famous for probably twenty-five years. Why? why, I mean, I don't know the story of the brownies. Why? Famous. Well, apparently, some one of the chefs, or maybe one of the early National Science Foundation reps that was down visiting, had this famous, you know, recipe from a grandma or aunt or something for brownies, and it just sort of became part of the lore of the station. And I so, see. this same recipe is now. In fact, I believe that when you visit the galley, if, if you're on a tour ship, uh, you can actually take a copy of the recipe with you. But eating it, you've got to have the brownie there, looking out over the bay from the window. Um, it's, it's just fantastic. So there is sort of, they get the sense of what it's like to live and work at an Antarctic station. The commitment and enthusiasm of the staff that support the science there. I mean, whether you're the guy who's dealing with the trash or the carpenter or the medical doctor, you're, you're there because you want to support science. And, and that's exciting. And the people that visit the station on these ships sense that. And they take that enthusiasm for the science back with them. Now, now I'm sold. I mean, if I want to go, what what do you do?
0: How does someone go about getting that? If they're listening to this and say, man, I really want to do that, how much does it cost? Tell, tell our listeners how they go about doing this if they were interested in it, whether it was, is with your company or whomever. Well, I'm going
1: to be biased and say, I, come with me. Sure. Uh, well, I, I would I, go I, with an expert, I, sure. I, 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 I'm happy to introduce anybody to Antarctica, and this is a fantastic experience. This cruise ship that I'm on, Abercrombie and Kent's ship, is, is very top of the line. Um, so it's a little more expensive, but it's worth it. Well, I'm sure. But um, I mean, what
0: are we talking, just for curiosity? Well, on, on I average. would say
1: on average, you're looking at anywhere from ten dollars to $15,000 sure. per person. Sure. And that's true for most of the cruise companies. There's probably six or seven cruise companies that go to Antarctica now. And, um, you know, you can go all different levels, but none of them are going to be inexpensive. Antarctica is something you have to save for, but it is something that will change you. It's worth the investment. And, um, I love it when I meet the school teacher who's saved and said, this is something on my bucket list. I'm going to do this. It doesn't have to be a hedge fund manager. I mean, I love that. Um, And the people that go on these cruises just love learning, you know, as a lecturer you're kind of like a rock star you know you go around the ship and you're invited to have dinner with so and so and what are we going to see next and where are we going to land tomorrow and is it true that the Adelie penguins don't read the antarctic treaty and they don't know they're supposed to stay 15 feet back from you and yes it's true they you know the wildlife just comes right up to you in antarctica it has no perceived fear of humans um when the passengers are dressed in their red coats on the beach, mingling with thousands of penguins, I think the penguins just think they're big, big, red, big penguins. red penguins. Right? Yeah, Sure. It's, and there's an etiquette when they come down the trail at you. You know, you step to the side and you let the ten penguins go by. And there's three species of penguins that you'll see on the yeah, trip. Yeah, talk to us yeah. about those three. Yeah, you'll see the Adelis, which are the sure. Charlie Chaplains Charlie and Chapman. the little tuxedos. Sure. Um, but there's two other species of brush-tailed penguins. There's the Gentoo, which is a bigger one with an orange splotch on the side of its face. And then you have my favorite, which is the Chinstrap, which has a little black chin strap under its chin. Um, and so those three species you'll, you'll always see on your trip to the Antarctic Peninsula. Those are guaranteed. Occasionally, you'll see a macaroni penguin. Uh, one time, we came across a king penguin standing in the midst of thousands of Adelie penguins, twice as tall, looking around like, where did I make the wrong turn? So where would where the... Yeah, I think a lot of people are familiar with the king penguins. Where would they normally be? Well, normally, they're sub-Antarctic. Okay. They're actually warmer species. Right. Um, on one very rare occasion, we got around the very tip of the peninsula and down the east side quite a ways. And it's much colder over on the east side than the west side. So when we came across a big ice floe with about a dozen emperor penguins, that wasn't—it was unusual, but not out of the question because you're in such a colder climate. So that's the—that's the species of penguin that really likes it cold. Now, now, that's the march of the that's penguin. That's the penguin species. Yeah, right.
0: now, exactly. I think many people are also familiar with. No, mm-hmm. you said something earlier before we started talking on the podcast about. Uh, the warming conditions and much more ice sort of floating around in the water. Does that present a danger for the ships?
1: Uh, That's a great question. Forty percent of the sea ice, the the annual sea ice, has receded over the last 40 years. So we do have more ice floating around. We have more icebergs floating around because of the breakup of these ice sheets, which are, you know, a thousand foot thick ice that's that's peeling off and, and breaking up into icebergs. The big icebergs are followed by satellites. So the ship captains all know where those are. Um, It's the smaller ones that they have to really be vigilant about. And there's always somebody on the bridge. That's one of the fun things about the Antarctic cruises is that you get up on the bridge as much as you want, really. Hmm. Um, And there's an ice captain on some of these ships, people who are trained in how to negotiate ice, or the captains of the ships themselves have a lot of ice experience. Uh, There's always somebody with binoculars looking ahead at nighttime, they'll use lights, so they're very they're very cognizant of ice. The other thing is that most of the Antarctic cruise ships have reinforced hulls, and these are you know for protection against hitting ice. Um, some of the bigger cruise ships that go down that take a thousand to two thousand passengers are not reinforced. Um, now that said, a lot of the big cruise ships that used to go to Antarctica have stopped going, and the reason is that the the treaty the antarctic treaty nations came together and decided for environmental reasons that all ships going to antarctica have to burn a very high quality fuel so that meant the big ships either had to retrofit their engines to burn that fuel or they and they also had to pay a lot more for the fuel So the ships that go to Antarctica now are typically 150 passengers, 200, maybe 300, but none of the big multi-thousand passenger ships, which quite frankly would have been frustrating to me because you're not allowed to go to shore. Exactly. You just go along and look. You just sort of look. And to me, that would be so frustrating because you're looking at the most beautiful landscape and wildlife you've ever seen and to not be able to be amongst it, you know, literally on the beach would be frustrating.
0: VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
1: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
0: Learn more at meta.com/slash/metaverse impact. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and we are talking with James McClintock from UAB about his experiences in Antarctica, finding cures from underwater forests in Antarctica, and. I want to pivot the discussion now uh, to an interesting topic. I want to pick up from where we left off. You were talking about cruising in the Antarctic. Do you have any experience with cruising in the Arctic? I know that that's starting to happen as well because of some of the losses in sea ice and the opening opening of some of the passages as well. What are your thoughts on what's happening in the Arctic?
1: Yeah, yeah, I actually was invited uh, several years ago by Abercrombie and Kent uh, to be the climate change lecturer aboard their Arctic cruise. And I jumped at the opportunity. Um, we actually departed from Norway, and we did a circumnavigation of the Svalbard Islands, which are north of Norway. Spectacular trip. Um, it's very different than the Antarctic. Of course, the Arctic is an ocean surrounded by continents versus Antarctica, which is a continent surrounded by uh, by ocean. Now, the Arctic, you're correct, is really sort of the, um, uh, the quintessential example of how climate has rewritten the landscape. We did not find sea ice in our trip until did, we, wait, we, 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 literally, we literally looked for sea ice by going north of the Svalbard Islands, it was not on our itinerary, But the captain said, let's go see if we can find the ice. What would he have found if that were 30 years ago? Oh, there would have been ice. I guarantee it. So we went north of the Svalbard Islands and north and north and, you know, hours went by. And eventually we hit the sea ice. And I remember looking out off the deck at this ice and thinking, I don't think this ice would support the weight of a polar bear. I mean, it was just fragmented and thin and wimpy ice. So that was one thing that struck me. The other thing was we had to search for wildlife in the Arctic in the Antarctic. the wildlife searches for you I mean there it's everywhere right so we went looking for polar bears, obviously, and we were very fortunate that we did come across three polar bears that were feeding on we think a car- carcass of a porpoise or something. We were in zodiac boats, so we could get thirty feet from three polar bears. It was absolutely spectacular. Um, Now, the year before, uh, on the same cruise that I was not on, they had come across a group of polar bears that were on shore that were feeding on bird eggs and small chicks. They were in an auk rookery. Auk is a little bird that's common in the Arctic. And they were foraging around trying to find essentially enough to eat. And this is the problem that's happening in the Arctic. And it's not just the polar bear. There's a whole group of organisms that depend on the sea ice. The polar bears go out on the ice and they wait for a seal to come up, you know, a crack in the ice, and they feed on a two or three or four hundred pound creature. That's sure. that's a meal. And with the ice disappearing, now they're having to forage other ways, and it's very hard to make that kind of energy demand met when you're feeding on eggs and chicks. So you do see some some of the big impacts of climate when you go up to the Arctic as well. You also get to see some of the uh, the People, you know, people have occupied the Arctic sure, they, yeah, and, and their eyes. lives are being rewritten by how climate is changing in the Arctic. So that was interesting to meet uh, people that lived in these villages on some of the little towns that were in the Svalbard Islands. Um, we did visit uh, a an amazing place I'll never forget. It was very steep cliffs in the Arctic that were covered with millions of birds nesting. Hmm. And I think they were ox and kittiwakes. And they were coming in, feeding their young with little fish in their mouths, and it was so noisy that you you and I, Marshall, would have a hard time hearing each other, and we're sitting, what, five feet from sure, each other. exactly. So that was an amazing experience. Um, so the Arctic, to me, is is, is definitely something you should do, uh, but maybe I'm biased, having been in Antarctica for most of my career. Um, I would do the Arctic first, and then go to the Antarctic. Okay. Don't do it the other way around. Yeah. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah. So good advice there. Now, tell us a little bit about your
0: journey of, of in terms of climate yeah. what you know about climate change.
1: I think I think that you know when I first started working in Antarctica 30 years ago, it really wasn't on my radar. I wasn't really thinking about climate. Um, where it really became evident to me that it was a big deal and enough to really alter my my career. Now that I have taken this on as an educational outreach piece, um, was 20 you know approximately 20 years ago when I moved from McMurdo Station, which is not affected by climate nearly to the degree of the Antarctic Peninsula. That was that was a, a renaissance. That was a comeuppance for me. That moment when I realized, oh, my goodness, I am living in the midst of dramatic change. I'm watching a community change that historically would have changed over thousands of years, change in several decades. Oh, that, and, let's, and, let's and that's th- the concern with me. It's it's not that things don't change. Of course they change. Sure. It's the rate of change. That's
0: what I wanted you to really zero mm-hmm. in on, because right. I think a lot of people don't realize that it's, it's still astounding to me that I'll, I'll have someone come up to me as, as a scientist in this field and say, well, you know, the climate has always changed natural. And I was like, uh, yeah, I know yep. that.
1: But the rate of change is really what is alarming. It is. And as a biologist and as all of my colleagues across the world who are biologists well know, some organisms are not able to make that rapid a change. And it depends on the type of organism. If you're a bacteria and you replicate in a matter of hours, um, you may be in a better position to change if you're in a delhi penguin and you have a 30 or 40 year lifespan you don't have the ability to change so there are going to be winners and losers but but let it be known i mean the the conservation biologists are out there saying that we may very well be entering a major period of extinction on our planet that is in part uh, because of climate change it's not just the fact that we're building bigger cities and we're losing habitat but these, these things that are happening with climate, the offsetting of predator and prey, for example. Uh, I'll give you an example in Antarctica. Please. So I work with things like starfish and sea urchins, and they produce little larvae, little babies, that swim around in the water for a period, in Antarctica, a period of three or four months. Um, And then they settle to the bottom of the sea and they metamorphose into a juvenile starfish. It's as dramatic a change as a caterpillar going to a butterfly. Well, while they're larvae, um, many of them feed on plankton And what happens is you warm the water up one or two degrees, and instead of taking four months to develop, these larvae can develop in four or five weeks. They're very temperature sensitive. They've never experienced this. Their enzymes are going, oh my goodness. And then, so what could happen is if you're very quickly developing in the water, you could show up at the cafeteria and the door's locked. The phytoplankton bloom hasn't occurred yet. And this is something that's happening in many different biological ecosystems on our planet. Yeah, we see it with As, birds in southern Appalachia. Exactly, yeah. exactly, Marshall. So this is something that concerns uh, Antarctic biologists and Arctic biologists and tropical ecologists. Um, and so this is another thing that contributes to the potential for extinction. This is really yeah. interesting. We're talking with Dr. James McClintock from UAB. Uh, I want to use this
0: last segment of the podcast because you, you mentioned climate change communication. And by the way, uh, maybe... Make sure you check out Lost Antarctica and also, the, um, I'm sorry, The Natural, uh, A Naturalist Goes Fishing. Uh, I want to uh, end the discussion with that, that, that book. But before we get to that, I want to hear your thoughts on effective climate change communication. Okay. that's What, a, what are your, some you
1: know, of your sort of tricks of the trade? If well, you one thing I realized is that I wanted to write a book about this experience of witnessing climate change. And I wanted to write it not for scientists, I wanted to write it for the general public. So I discovered that to write a book, you have to have a literary agent. And in order to have a literary agent, you have to have a book. And so I turned to my colleague. Uh, I'm just amazingly honored that I have this colleague. His name is E.O. Wilson. E.O. Wilson is one of the most famous living scientists today, and he's a friend. And E.O. was able to help me find a literary agent so i wrote my book lost antarctica and i found that the book was able to get me in front of large audiences um i was you know on npr and cnn and weather channel weather channel Channel. actually this isn't the first time I, i heard um and and that's wonderful to have a voice that reaches that far the book is written so that you don't have to be a scientist to understand, you know, the excitement of doing science in Antarctica. But the narrative of the book has to do with climate. And the big compliments I get is this was a fun book to read. And it's just the kind of book I want to give to Uncle Charlie, who doesn't believe in climate change. <laughs> okay, so that, so because, there, there's your because Uncle Because you can learn the science painlessly. Yes. And, and it's objective. It's not a political statement. It's not telling you what to drive. It's just making it clear that this is happening and you can see it and feel it through the eyes of those that have observed it
0: dr mcclinton how what do you say to those who would say oh yeah that's great but i don't live in antarctica i i, I mean I, I get it i mean I'm, I'm concerned about the polar bears too but you know what do you say to the people that have more of a i live here in the now and i don't really care what's happening at the end of the earth how do you make that connection for them
1: well i Several ways. One is, we've already talked about earlier, is drug discovery. Right. This is just the tip of the iceberg of what's there that could be found in these Antarctic waters. Why would we squander that? People get that. Um, But they also get it when I explain that Antarctica is connected to us through its weather because these currents come up into the Atlantic, they come up into the Pacific, and they do influence our climate. And what I like to do is get people to think about how the climate is changing in their own backyard. Um, and it's not hard to do now. Um, you know, you go down. I'll, I'll, I lecture a lot now to Rotary groups. You know, I talk to the Rotary, rotary. clubs quite a bit. Yeah, a I'm a member of Rotary. Yeah. And, and the biggest Rotary club in the world is in Birmingham, Alabama. And when I get somebody in Rotary coming up after my third climate talk I've given there, three invitations now, and saying to me, I'm concerned that this is really happening. And I said, well, what convinced you of that? And they said, well, your presentation, but also I can't seem to get insurance on my beach house. And I'm watching the rates go through the ceiling. And this has to have something to do with sea level rise and the exposure to hurricanes. And they're starting to put together in their own portfolio impacts. I spoke uh, at a very rural radio station outside of Chattanooga after doing the NPR station. I was taken out to talk about global warming uh, when I spoke at the Tennessee Aquarium. And I'll never forget the the gentleman in the station saying, Dr. McClintock, the phone is going to ring after your global warming talk and it's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be pretty. And he was right. (laughs) Oh, sure. He was right. The phone rang and this guy was livid. I was making this up. It was a giant conspiracy. He went on and on, and finally the guy running the radio station said, Joe, stop. Just just hold it right there, Joe. You were telling me that your tomatoes in your garden have been blooming earlier each year for the last five years. You've been telling me the birds on your feeder have been changing you haven't seen these species before and within 3 or 4 minutes he had turned joe around and convinced him that climate change was real and it was happening in his front yard and so sometimes it's who's telling you the story absolutely and and, and that's what's so important for scientists like myself is to learn how to communicate effectively without coming across as overly scientific using jargon or arrogant too. or being arrogant yeah I, I, I that's totally, one of the, I, I,
0: uh, that's one of the things I use. I, I wrote an article called Nine Tips for Communicating Science mm-hmm. to Non-Scientists in Forbes a mm-hmm. couple of uh, months ago. And I talk about connecting to the value system that the person understands. He understands his tomato garden. right? And so that, that's a really key point. That's great. Yeah. And I, I want to talk a little
1: bit now about A Naturalist Goes Fishing. This mm-hmm. is your
0: latest book. What, what's this book about? So
1: if you'll, excuse, if you'll excuse the pun, my hook for A Naturalist Goes Fishing was to find a way to convey uh, ocean acidification, climate change, these con- these things that are affecting the conservation of fish in a very uh, non-scientific, fun-to-read way. Everybody loves a fishing story. 40 million Americans fish. Um, you don't have to like to fish to enjoy this book, uh, but it has great stories about fishing. And each fish that's highlighted, I talk about the, the the environmental pressures that are coming about that are forcing that fish into into some tough times. Um, it could be water quality, it could be warming, it could be ocean acidification. Um, but it's it's not a downer. It's also about the things that are being done right. You know how which species of fish are sustainable, and and how are we making Making that so. Um, So, you get a a mixture of stories from around the world, you know, trout fishing in New Zealand, catching a big tarpon in in Costa Rica. Um, It's not that I can afford to go fishing like that. It's this as a professor, when I'm on a research expedition or I'm teaching a course with my students, I'll take a half a day off and go fish. And that's where I get my fishing stories from.
0: Well, and it's interesting because I think this is another place of connectivity to the average person too, because people eat seafood, they eat fish, and they don't understand that these fisheries are very much affected
1: by some of the things we've been talking about today. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, I love it when people say, this is a great book about fishing and I learned some science too. It's really neat. You know, now I can give it to uncle Joe and he'll find out what ocean acidification is, you know? So that's, that's what I'm aiming for.
0: Can I give you the last word here? We're drawing to a close. would you have our weather geeks listeners know about your research or what you hope to find out in the coming years
1: well i think that uh, i i encourage you to to reach out and listen to scientists that are experiencing what's going on with climate talk to your neighbors who are experiencing it um, maybe take on the challenge of uh, that uncle
0: that, why, why that, do you think that, that uncle or that caller is so angry i did want to ask you that why why where where does the anger come from
1: well, I think it's a, I think it's a little bit of politics. I th- you know, we're living in a time and an age when, when things like this are very dogmatic. You you sort of belong to a camp, the tribe, the tribe. Yeah. And unfortunately, climate change has sort of been lumped into one of those camps. Right. And so if you're if you're willing to challenge your own in-group, by saying that you're 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 rethinking global warming that might really be a, a concern. I think there's some ostracization that can go on right. within your peer group. And that, you know, we're humans. We those are our friends and, and we we hold them dear. And that's one of the reasons why I don't believe in being dogmatic or political when I talk about the issue because what I find is if you do that, people immediately put they up flinch. blinders. They do. They just don't want to go there. And and I don't blame them. Um, nobody likes to be told what to do. But what I find is if you're objective and you use storytelling and you pull them in and they begin to look at you and say, this is somebody that I relate to. Then when you tell them that you're witnessing climate change, they listen. At least they're listening. Um, and I'll get people now, you know, what can I do? What, what can I make a difference? And you can. There are things that you can do. Yeah. Um, some, I laughed once. Somebody said, the most important thing you can do is vote. You know, and I thought about that. Yeah, there's some truth to that. Um, but, you know, what you drive, how you insulate your home, whether you use solar panels on the roof of your house, all these things add up. And uh, they, I think an individual can make a difference.
0: And that's where I think we'll have to end it. Thank you for joining us. And thank you all for listening to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepherd from the University of Georgia.